1: Back in August, President Biden hosted a made-for-television event on the White House lawn. It was about electric vehicles. Please, everybody sit down. Please, please, please. The president wore his signature aviator sunglasses as he stepped up to the microphone. Someone had parked a bunch of trucks behind him for visual interest. Eventually, he ended up driving an electric Jeep in circles around the White House— It was hard not to feel like the communications team was working overtime to spark interest in something a lot of Americans are not thinking much about. Not just electric vehicles, but all of the things that go into building them.
0: And a key part of the electric vehicle, to state the obvious, is the battery. And right now, 80 percent of the manufacturing capacity for these batteries is done in China. You know, it was back in August that... President Biden announced that by 2030, he wanted half of all new cars going on the market to be electric vehicles. But we just have to move, and we have to move fast. You know, when... Is that realistic? Is that realistic? I mean, it's a pretty ambitious goal, to be sure. Michael
1: Holtz reports for The Atlantic and other outlets. He was watching this presser with some interest, because he knows just how fragile the electric vehicle supply chain really is. Like those batteries Biden was talking about? It's not just that many car companies aren't assembling them here in the US. We don't even have the raw materials. Batteries for EVs require a metal called cobalt. China controls much of the world's supply. What is it about cobalt that makes it so essential for an electric vehicle?
0: Cobalt's main function in lithium-ion batteries is that it's a very heat-resistant metal. And so it's used basically to ensure that the batteries don't light on fire.
1: That seems really important.
0: Yeah. And so uh, as things like electric vehicles uh, become more popular, the demand in, in cobalt is just going up and up and up every year.
1: Most cobalt is mined in the Congo. And our climate emergency means a race is on to find cobalt everywhere else, including right here in the U.S. So is cobalt a clean, like, like, is it a clean resource? In what sense? Like, I just wonder when you hear people talking about electric vehicles as being powered by clean energy, what you make of that?
0: Yeah, I think this is where it gets really interesting for me. Because I think on the one hand, if you were to look at electric vehicles and compare them to gas-powered vehicles, obviously, when it comes to carbon emissions, they're going to be way cleaner. But the things that are needed to make electric vehicles still have to come from somewhere. Today on the show,
1: Michael went to a place where America's clean energy future is about to be unearthed. But will the Idaho cobalt belt survive the coming rush? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos Before we talk about cobalt mining in Idaho, which is just getting up and running, I want to talk about how cobalt is mined right now. Again, much of the world's supply comes from the Congo. And from there, it gets processed and becomes an essential part of the batteries, not just in electric vehicles, but in cell phones, too. Michael Holt says, it's easy to understand why finding an ethical cobalt source is so important when you realize how dangerous mining can be in Africa.
0: In the Congo, it's a very unregulated industry. It's a lot of individuals who are going out and mining the stuff with very limited equipment, very limited training. You know, cave-ins are common. You have issues around human rights abuses. You have child labor. You have all sorts of concerns around public health and and, and the health effects of, of these mining operations.
1: I read that it's been found that Men who work in the mine, their babies are more likely to have birth defects. There are just all sorts of impacts from the mining.
0: Yeah, exactly. There was a study that came out, I want to say last year in The Lancet, that was done in southern Congo that found that men who worked in mines were more likely to father children with birth defects than those who did not. And as things stand now, that's where the vast majority of the cobalt used in things like electric vehicle batteries is coming from.
1: And then there's the issue of China. Because most of these Congolese mines are owned by Chinese companies. That means a key supply chain is locked up by an American diplomatic rival. But it turns out the United States has its own history with mining cobalt. In the Salmon Chalice National Forest in Idaho, where the Blackbird mine operated for decades before demand dried up. It was in
0: 1959 when the federal government announced that its cobalt stockpile was basically full.
1: They basically said, like, we don't anticipate ever needing more of this, which is kind of funny to think about now.
0: Oh, completely. I mean, at the time, it's understandable because what they needed cobalt for um, was to build jet engines, essentially. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were some other uses for it, but it's not like now where it's in your phone, it's in your cars, it's, it's, all, it's all these things. And so at the time, it's in some ways perhaps understandable that they thought they had, an, they had what they needed. And so the federal government had been subsidizing the company a, to operate the Blackbird mine. And when the federal government stopped subsidizing this company, they basically shut it down. And there had been this town, that um, was actually named Cobalt, uh, that was just a few miles away from the mine. It was this company town where a bunch of the miners lived with their families. There was a movie theater there, a bowling alley, a small grocery store, a few popular bars. So what's left behind? From that operation, right now, honestly, not much of anything at the mine itself. You have, you know, these old sort of crumbling concrete ruins where the mill used to be, and you have what's called um, portals, which are basically the holes in the side of the mountain that would lead to the underground mine shafts. And the one thing that's still in operation at Blackbird is the water treatment plant, and that is because there is still pollution that's leaching out from the underground mine works, from various collection ponds, that needs to be basically treated before it can be released in the nearby creeks. This
1: cleanup is the downside of mining for cobalt. Like all mining, it's dirty. For a long time, it was unclear who would be responsible for the mess the Blackbird mine left behind. Back in the 80s, Idaho sued the companies who'd extracted cobalt for so many years compelling them to pay $100 million to set things right. Fish and other wildlife have only recently returned to this land.
0: You know, when I was there touring Blackbird um, with some of the representatives from one of these companies that um, is involved with the cleanup, you know, they told me when it comes to things like water treatment, they're going to be doing this for a very, very, very long time. I mean, they really don't know how much longer they're going to need to do this for just because... Of the pollution that the mining has caused, and that you know just takes a very long time to 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 clean up.
1: And you can see this pollution is what I understand from your reporting. Like one creek turned blue because it had so much copper in it.
0: Yeah, and that was back in the 1990s, maybe early 2000s. It was still that way. Um, And to be fair to the companies that are overseeing the cleanup operation, they have made a lot of progress compared to you know, what it looked like 20, 30 years ago. And so while the creeks are no longer blue in the way that they were back then, that was largely because of copper deposits uh, and the way it interacted with the water would, would turn these creeks almost this neon blue color. You can look at photos online. It's it's almost kind of eerie the way, the way it looks, but they were completely lifeless, you know, um, insects, fish, all of it was basically non-existent in these creeks around this mine. And so Over the years, they made a lot of progress in in cleaning them up. Chinook salmon returned to some of the creeks, I believe, in the early 2000s. But that being said, when I was there, uh, you follow the Blackbird Creek, which is where the the mine takes its name, up through uh, this narrow valley. And when you get closer to the old mining operations, um, the rocks in the creek take on this orange rust color. And I found out that that's because iron sulfide, which is in heavy concentration in the tailing impoundment, um, will leach out with the water and into the creek. And under current regulations, there's no requirement that the companies do anything to clean that up. But it's still really noticeable. And it's a really a stark introduction to this region because, in fact, To get to the new mine, Gervois Global's mining operation, which is going to be starting, if all things go as planned later this summer, you have to go through Blackbird. And so you can't help but think, you know, about sort of the risks and the consequences and what mining has done to this part of the country, um, historically speaking, just to get to this this new mining operation.
1: When we come back, If mining devastated this region years ago, will a booming electric vehicle industry devastate it again?
0: Happens in Ukraine has consequences for what's happening around AI. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters wherever you listen.
1: In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID 19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. spot, The Plague in the Shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Someone Michael Holtz met when he traveled to Idaho was one of the Cobalt Belt's newest prospectors, the executive general manager of an Australian mining company called Gervois Global. Michael watched as a foundation was poured for a facility that's going to produce enough cobalt to power 160,000 electric vehicles. This Australian company told him, it's learned the lessons of mining operations past. It's preparing to preserve this region. It seemed to me when you talked to the people who are trying to start mining there again now because of the new boom, it was almost like their memory had been wiped clean. They were just so excited for what they were about to do. Is that a fair characterization?
0: I think to a certain extent, it is. I mean, you know, there's this town about 20, 30 miles away called Salmon, which is a town of a few thousand people. It's pretty remote. I think the next closest town is, I want to say it's Bozeman, Montana. A lot of people will go there on the weekends to go to, um, like, do grocery runs, basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, this town historically came into existence because of the mining industry, and it wasn't just cobalt mining. I mean, gold mining, silver mining, Idaho. I think it's nicknamed the Gem State, so um, you know, its history is very much tied up with with mining and all kinds of all kinds of resources. And for salmon, it's been decades since there's really been. Any sort of substantial mining operation there and so economically speaking you know they haven't had a ton going for them recently and so when i talk to people who live there uh they are pretty excited um, about the prospects of these new mines coming online um, and bringing jobs look community because it's just been a while before at least economically speaking they've had much activity and so for them this this does present a lot of real opportunities You know, I talked to one woman uh, who oversees the county's sort of um, Economic Development Association and Gervois had told her that, you know, something like 150 uh, full-time jobs are going to be made available once this mine gets up and running. Um, And there's five other companies, at least, that are looking in the same region uh, at starting their own cobalt operations. And so you can imagine, you know, even a handful of these mines actually open, then that could be a huge economic boom to this community.
1: Yeah. I mean, the history of the Blackbird Mine seems like a cautionary tale. But I guess the thing that stood out to me in your reporting was I'm kind of used to hearing people talk about the importance of jobs as a trade-off when you're talking about something like mining, when you're talking about a big industry, like, well, we need employment here. But I was surprised when you spoke to a conservationist, a guy named Justin Hayes, who basically made a moral case for opening up cobalt mining in Idaho and saying, listen, you know, climate change is massive. This is a way for us to do our part. And there will be fewer human rights abuses than we see in the Congo. I just hadn't I hadn't heard an activist have that kind of hard calculus before.
0: Yeah, I think it was a really revealing conversation. That being said, you know, he will be the first to tell you that um, Idaho Conservation League, they are very much focused on protecting the natural environment in Idaho. But I think doing that kind of work in a state like Idaho, where the mining industry has so much sway and economically speaking is so important, you know, I think he... He, he's trying to be realistic about it. And so there is a valid question about if we're going to need cobalt to move away from gas-powered vehicles and in doing so, you know, help fight climate change, then how can we get the cobalt we need as responsibly as possible? And what are those trade-offs? Is
1: there an alternative to mining cobalt, to power electric vehicles?
0: There is a lot of research being done into alternatives. So ways to design electric vehicle batteries that don't require cobalt. Um, Tesla came out, I want to say in late September, saying that they were working towards a new battery design that would not use any cobalt at all. Um, I'm not sure how many years, I don't think they even announced how far out that, Is, but a lot of companies are looking to design their batteries, their cars without using cobalt at all.
1: Would that just mean mining something
0: else? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) as far as I know, you're not going to be able to design these batteries, you know, without. All kinds of metals, you know, and, 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 and even if you get rid of cobalt, batteries are still going to require lithium, for example. And there's similar issues around new lithium mining operations in places like Nevada, which raise a lot of similar questions to the ones I was raising in a story about cobalt mining in, in Idaho. Um, and so, you know, on balance, is it better? I guess you can make the argument that, that it is, but it's not, it's not a completely, There are costs associated with this, and I think it's important for people to to keep that in mind.
1: Yeah, looking at the trade-offs here, they feel difficult to get your arms around. And I look at a place like Idaho's Cobalt Belt, and I think it's probably unstoppable that a bunch of mining is going to happen here. But this region has just experienced the very toxic downside of mining, and the only good thing about that is that local authorities, federal authorities, could be proactively trying to protect the region and make sure that mining doesn't do the kind of damage it's done in the past. Are there signs that that's happening?
0: Yeah, I think I think there are. I mean. The permitting process alone, it's multiple years, multiple drafts. You have to you know get approval from the Forest Service, the EPA is involved. So there is a lot of federal and state oversight in these operations. And the biggest thing probably is the fact that the um, federal regulations required Gervois to post um, a thirty point eight million dollars reclamation bond to fund cleanup activities after the mine closes.
1: So basically, they have to put up the money now.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is this has become fairly common practice in mining operations like this around the country. And so the guy I toured the site with, um, he told me that the water treatment plant is designed to operate for 100 years, if necessary, after the mine closes. Um, and so there is a lot in place to try to ensure that you know, mine operations like the one that's about to get started in the Salmon Chalice National Forest, you know, it doesn't leave behind the sort of legacy that Blackbird did.
1: Is it enough?
0: I mean, I think we're gonna have to wait and see, right? Um, I think it's too early to say. Um, hopefully it is. Hopefully after this mine closes, this will be enough money to cover whatever cleanup activity needs to be done. Um, You know, that being said, you're not going to ever return this sort of pristine forest to what it was before, but you can do a better job at cleaning it up um, compared to what happened with Blackbird. And so um, I think we're just going to have to wait and see.
1: Michael Holtz, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah,
0: thanks. Happy to be here.
1: Michael Holtz is a freelance journalist. His article in The Atlantic is called Idaho is Sitting on One of the Most Important Elements on Earth. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, and Daniel Hewitt. We are led by Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back in this feed bright and early tomorrow morning.